Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for Jesus. That, Lord, in Christ we have hope and forgiveness of sin and reconciliation with you. We have the promise of eternity. In the Bible, Lord, we have a secure and certain revelation about how you feel about us and what you desire for us. And Lord, even as we gather, there are those who oppose you and who oppose Jesus. And Lord, in direct proportion to our willingness to stand for Jesus, there are those who would stand against us. But Lord, we pray that we would fulfill the promise in the word of God. That we would love you. That we would love our neighbor. And that, Lord, we would love our enemy. That, Lord, it would be our deep desire to respond to them the way that you responded to us when we were separated from you. In wickedness and selfishness. Lord, we pray that you would speak to the heart that needs to know you. And needs to be transformed by you. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 15, beginning in verse 18, Jesus says, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father but this has happened that the word might be fulfilled, which was written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Chapter 15 has been all about fruit bearing in verses 1 through 8. About loving in verses 9 through 17. But now the conversation will shift, if you will, from fruit bearing and love to suffering and later, in verses 26 and 27, to witnessing. Jesus told his disciples about the need to abide in him, to remain in him, to be found in him. The follower of Jesus must be united to Jesus, for in Jesus is the love of God 
The father loves the son. The son loves the believer. And the believer is united in love both to father and son and fellow believer. The priority of love is followed by the proof of love. Jesus will sacrifice himself. He will lay down his life. The proof includes a new friendship. We're no longer slaves, but friends. And the priority of love and the proof of love and the promises of love include that our branches will bear permanent fruit. In verse 16, look what it says. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain and that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. We're called upon to bear permanent fruit. We're also called upon that our prayers will be answered. Now, from John's perspective, you are either in Christ or you are in the world. There is really no middle ground. There is no half-hearted commitment. My friend Greg Laurie often speaks of mugwumps. Mugwumps are people whose mug is on one side of the fence and their wump is on the other side of the fence. And for the Christian, there's no worse position with one foot in and one foot out. John makes it clear, you are follower or you are foe. And so, the conversation shifts from the priority of love in verse 17, which leads to the inevitability of suffering and persecution, even hatred in verse 18. The conversation shifts from love of the brethren to hatred by the world. And now we understand why the priority of love has been so emphasized. Because you're going to need invisible, internal power in order to face the opposition that will come. G.K. Chesterton wrote, Jesus promised his disciples three things that they would be completely fearless, absurdly happy and in constant trouble. That's right. As a matter of fact, for those familiar with Jesus' words, remember in Mark 13, 9 and in Matthew 10, Jesus says they will deliver you up to councils and you will be beaten in the synagogue and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear testimony before them. And brother will deliver up a brother and father, his child and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And listen carefully, you will be hated by all men for my name's sake. And for those of you who aren't fond of that particular passage and you have no desire to be hated because you live a life of constant caving in to other people's approval. Paul rebukes all of us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, when he says, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. When Paul wrote those words, he was in a prison cell at the bottom of a pit with a little grate over the top 
awaiting execution in the midst of one of the most horrendous waves of persecution that began to take place against Christians. When John wrote the gospel, when John wrote the, this particular passage of Scripture, generations had already passed and the hatred was in full force. Tacitus, who was a Roman historian, spoke of Christians as the people, quote, hated for their crimes, whom the mob call Christians. And Suetonius had spoken of a, quote, a race of men who belong to a new and evil superstition, unquote. Christians were around. And the Roman government hated the Christians. But do you realize that the Roman government hated the Christians not because of religious persecution? Believe it or not, as hard as this may be for you to comprehend, in the world of Rome there was religious freedom. You could worship whatever God you wanted to. You could worship whatever force you wanted to. You could worship anything or anyone. As a matter of fact, there was a strange movement that took place in Asia Minor that began as a declaration of loyalty to the emperor and soon became a cult, a kind of cult of celebrity that devoted itself to the emperor. And soon people would be required to take loyalty oaths to the emperor. Once a year, Roman citizens and Roman subjects would come and they would pinch, if you will, some incense to the emperor and they would declare their loyalty to the emperor. But the Christians refused to do it. They said they only had one Lord and that Lord was Jesus Christ. And so the Roman government hated the Christian because they perceived them as being disloyal subjects. The Roman mob hated the Christians because they believed certain lies and half lies and almost truths about Christians. As a matter of fact, two of Nero's favorite friends was his harlot wife, Popea, and his wicked actor friend named Alliterus. Both had converted from paganism to the Jewish faith. And they had the ear of the emperor. And they whispered in the ear concerning this pernicious new cult called Christianity. And the Christians were labeled as disloyal to the emperor. They were said to be cannibals. Do you know why? Because they would practice a rite whereby they would come together and they would break bread and drink wine. And they claimed that it was the body and the blood of their Savior. They were also said to indulge in bizarre agape love feasts. And in the Roman mind, they twisted an opportunity for friendship and fellowship into some sort of perverse, immoral behavior. And they were said to be incendiaries. Terrorists. You know why? Because they preached that their Savior would come back and that the whole world would burn when he returned. And so there was fear and suspicion because the Christians said that their God would come back and destroy the world with fire. And that Christians, when people became Christians, they tampered with family relationships, they divided families, they split homes, and they broke up marriages. 
they disrupted the household because slaves were coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ and they refused, if you will, to embrace and indulge in immorality and men and women would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and they would refuse to participate in the pagan cult practices. And husbands and wives and brothers and sisters and children would say, you've changed. When I married you, this isn't what I signed up for. And so, when Jesus says in verse 18, you are hated, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. And we're sometimes tempted to read that, if the world hates you, as a conditional statement that they may or may not hate you, but the vast majority of us are going to be able to go through life without any drama or trauma. But guess what? It's written in such a way in the original Greek language that it probably should read, since the world hates you. It's not a conditional clause. The Bible makes it clear that persecution is the norm. Now, does that mean that we should experience persecution of every moment of every day? No, the Bible says that even for some of us, God, by His grace and His mercy, will even allow your enemies to have peace with you. So what is he talking about? If the world hates you, what does Jesus mean by the world? Does he mean the planet Earth? That the North American and South American continents hate you? That somehow there's some sort of Antarctic or Arctic chill that is against you? No, he's not talking about the planet. The world of the unbeliever is what he's talking about. It says if the cosmos... That's going to be a familiar word because... You go to wherever it is that you buy your groceries, and there in broad daylight is a magazine called Cosmopolitan. About the fads and the fashions of the world, this is what he's talking about. He's talking about the world that is governed by Satan and whose citizens are the unbeliever. It is the world that stands in opposition to God and to the word of God and to the plan of God, the world is, quote, as my friend Warren Wiersbe says, the whole system of society that is opposed to Christ and the Father. That's what he's talking about. A world that stands in opposition to God, to the things of God, and to the Word of God. The whole world system includes the prevailing worldviews and philosophies that are at complete odds with the revelation of God in the Bible and the person of Jesus Christ. The moment that you declare that you are a Christian and that you believe that the Bible is true, people will laugh out loud. They will laugh out Loud. When Paul wrote the final words that he would ever write from his little prison cubicle at the bottom of a pit while awaiting execution in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 1 through 5, he wrote, but know this, that in the last days perilous times will come for men will be lovers of themselves and lovers of money and 
boasters and proud and blasphemers and disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers without self-control, brutal, despisers of the good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power and from such people turn away every moment of every day you will be invited into a world that stands in opposition to the word of God and the plan of God and the purpose of God and Jesus reminds his disciples that that hatred doesn't really begin and end with them but they first hated him and that we belong to Him, it says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 13. And by the way, the word translated hates, very interesting. It's the Greek word, mesei. It comes from the Greek verb, misio, or mesesso. It is in contrast to agape. And now we understand again, and we're reinforced again. Why love becomes so important. Because important love itself becomes the antidote. It becomes the mechanism. It becomes the blanket. It becomes the means whereby we can address such fierce hatred. And by the way, the hatred is not invisible and internal. Missio was visible and external. Missio was, wasn't the kind of hate that a person had in their heart that you never saw. It was active. It was an active ill will. It had the idea of being something that is done, not just so, simply in the way that people speak to you, but in the deeds that they do to you. It is a spirit, if you will, of persecution. And the word has the additional meaning to detest or abhor. But it can also have the meaning, depending upon the context, to love less than one ought. That's the way that it's used, by the way, in the book of Luke, chapter 14, when Jesus talks about he who hates mother and father. When Jesus talks about that you're to love the Lord and that you're to hate your mother and father, it's, it's not talking about the kind of hatred that is dishonoring and disobedient, but that your love for family, your love for mother, your love for father, your love for brother, your love for sister is insignificant. It could even be thought of as hate in comparison to your love of God. And so, the unjustified reasons of why you are hated now begins in verses 19 through 24. As a matter of fact, remember it says, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. 
So why does the world hate Christians? Jesus gives several reasons. Number one, because they first hated Jesus. Number two, because we're no longer of the world. We don't belong to the world. Because the world has rejected the revelation of Jesus, the Word of God, in verse 20. Because the world doesn't know God the Father. As a matter of fact, we're going to look at that closer in chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. And because the world's sin has been exposed by the Word of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus shows up, And he talks about the plan of God and the love of God and then the perception of God. It becomes overwhelming. I heard the story of a missionary who was in a remote part of Africa. And he was camping, if you will, and he had one of those large mirrors. You know, the mirrors that you took on one side to shave and you flip the mirror over and it magnifies so that you can see all the dirty details of your life in that mirror, you know, in in your face. And so he's shaving in the mirror and the mirror is hanging on the tree and a tribal chief comes by. It just so happens uh, this particular person is a leader in the tribe and his face is hideously disfigured. His hair is matted and dirty. He has a a, a headdress and tattoos and his face has been beaten and swollen by years of abuse. And he walks by the mirror and he sees himself in the mirror and he's startled. Who is that ugly man staring at me from the tree? And the missionary says, this is a mirror. And that ugly spirit staring at you from the tree is you. He goes, that is a lie. That cannot be. He goes, no, no, it is, it's true. And so he, he, he literally brought the person over and had a second and a third examination. And the chief said, I must have this mirror. He goes, no. He goes, I must have the mirror. And the missionary said, I'm sorry, I really need this mirror. He goes, I must have the mirror. And so finally, the missionary, in a gesture of goodwill, says, okay, I'll give you the mirror. And he takes the mirror and he says, you ugly spirit, you will never have the opportunity of making fun of anyone ever again. And he smashed it on the ground. By the way, the moment that he did that, did his appearance change? No, he simply got rid of the thing that reflected the circumstances of his appearance. And that's why the people hate the Bible so much, and that's why they hate you so much. Because when you show up and you reflect the love of God and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, when you show up and you make statements like there is such a thing as truth and there is such a thing as sin and there is such a thing as salvation, you begin to annoy people. Jesus talks about your separation and your identification, your conversation and your transformation, your 
Separation, of course, is you are separated from the world. Your identification, of course, is your identification with Christ. Your conversation, of course, is the way you live. And the transformation is the evidence of the love of God and the connectedness to Christ and the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit inside of you that he's going to be talking about. And so again, in verse 19, it says, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. You may have moments, pockets of peace, but make no mistake about it. The system that stands in opposition to God and the word of God and the things of God, make no mistake about it, hates you. I knew that I hated Christians when I was a kid growing up. There was a conscious, deliberate, specific, articulated hatred that I had for Christians. As a matter of fact, on my high school ha- campus, I can't think of a single person who hated Christians more than me. I hated their arrogance and I hated their hypocrisy, but most of all, I hated their God and I hated their religion. As a matter of fact, my hatred would grow in direct proportion to those people who were separated to Christ and identified with Christ and who actually walked in a lifestyle of Christianity, those were the targets of my deepest malevolence and hatred. Are there worldly Christians? Well, yeah, we are in the world as physical participants, but we're but we're not spiritual participants in the world. There's an old illustration. You've all heard about it, about a ship in the water. There's nothing wrong with a ship being in the water, but there is a problem when the water begins to get into the ship. And the same is true for the Christian. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. We are floating in this vast ocean that stands in opposition to God, but make no mistake about it, we're to keep the inside clean. And by the way, the world's ship is sinking. So Jesus brings new meaning to the word different. Jesus is sinless. Jesus is righteous. Jesus doesn't make mistakes. Jesus doesn't fail. Jesus speaks the truth. And Jesus speaks the truth without regard to favor or fear, and he always speaks the truth in love. Jesus doesn't compromise with evil. Jesus doesn't compromise with with the truth. He is never guilty of doctrinal error or personal hypocrisy. Jesus exposes the corruption of the human heart and the contamination of civilization. Jesus teaches in a memorable, however, in a confrontational manner. And Jesus has the annoying ability to cut through the incompetence of religious leaders and the fallacies of the religious leaders and their self-serving doctrines. And he shows up and adequately and accurately begins to represent God. And they hate him for it. And the moment that you show up, 
And the moment you open up your Bible, and the moment you start saying the words that are in the Bible, people will hate you. Some will even say, can't you just shut up? Can't you just close the Bible? Can't you say something other than the Scriptures? And then you do. Okay, I'll close my book. But you know God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. No! Life is going somewhere, and you're going to wind up at the end. And look what it says. I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Jesus says, I chose you out of the world. He's picking. He's choosing. You know, there are repeated warnings in the scripture. In James chapter 4, verse 4, it says, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wants to be friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, it says, Don't love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father isn't in him. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, it says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And then in 1 John chapter 2, verse 17, it says, And the world, the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. This world system that stands in opposition to Jesus and stands in opposition to God and stands in opposition to the plan of God and the word of God is ultimately going to fail. And that's your choice. To participate in a plan where you might get hurt right now, but you'll be fine forever. Or be fine right now and be hurt forever. The world's passion and love is for the lust of the flesh. That's things that you can touch, taste, see, food, clothes, money, immorality. Now, I want you to think about this for just a moment. When it talks about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, there's a, a channel on TV for each and every one of us. The lust of the food channel, fashion channel, money channel, porn channel. The world's passion and love is for the lust of, of the eyes, evil and immoral thoughts, coveting. That means wanting something you already have enough of. Seeing. Here is the idea. It's the celebrity channel. It's seeing and desiring. And you know what it says? It's seeing and desiring people and things. And the world's passion is the pride of life. That's position and honor and fame and self-centeredness and boasting and high-mindedness. These are the passions of the world that stands in opposition to the things of God because the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life stand in constant opposition to what God wants. 
And so in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, it says, and don't be conformed to this world. Don't be poured into this world's mold, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and the acceptable and the perfect will of God. The only way that you are going to be able to be not conformed to this world and the only way that you're going to be able to not be transformed by the renewing of your mind is if you reject the Word of God and the plan of God and the things of God. Think about it for just a moment. The world loves conformity. It loves pattern. The world is deeply, deeply suspicious of all things different. The moment that a person says to you, you're not, you're different. There's something odd about you. There's something peculiar. The world hates people whose lives are a constant reminder that there's something wrong with them. And in verse 20, it says, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. And in verse 20, when it says, remember the word that I said to you, you'll note it in in your Bible. It's singular. It's not talking about a particular passage or a particular verse. It's not even talking about a particular statement. It's talking about the sum and the substance of the message that Jesus has given right from the start and the whole message. A servant isn't greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. It is an apologetic technique where it talks about the fact That if it's true about the greater, it's going to be true about the lesser. If the ocean is salty, do you think a cup of ocean water is going to be salty? The answer is yes. If it's true about the greater, it's going to be true about the lesser. And the word persecute is an interesting word. It's the... Greek word dioko, it carries with it the idea not just of bad thoughts or bad feelings, it's a kind of a wicked pursuit. In other words, the word persecute itself means repeated acts of hostility, repeated acts of hatred, repeated acts of hostile prosecution. As a matter of fact, one of the greatest Greek scholars who ever lived used the illustration, A.T. Robertson, that this word is like a wild beast that's running down its prey. When you think about the word persecute, Think of a savage animal that is looking and devoting itself about how it can capture you and how it can actually eventually consume you. There's a terrifying movie called Ghost in the Darkness. It's about demonically possessed lions that thoughtfully, skillfully, specifically, identify a target and then they begin to hunt it and pursue it so they can capture it and consume it. That's the picture of the Bible. That's the picture of the devil. That's the picture of the devil when he identifies you and he targets you and he wants to 
devour you. But the Bible says, submit to God. Resist the devil. And he will flee. Jesus makes it abundantly clear. If we serve the master, guess what? You should expect the master's fate. And so Jesus is hounded from the very start throughout his ministry. The religious leaders hound him, identify him, try to trap him, try to kill him, and then eventually succeed. We are aliens and we are pilgrims. And completely, when all of these things begin to manifest themselves, the twelve disciples are going to die a martyr's death with the exception of John who writes this gospel. But even then, he's going to suffer trial. He's going to suffer persecution. According to church tradition, John the apostle is going to stand before the Syrian governor. He's going to be tried and he is going to be convicted and he's going to be sentenced to be boiled in a pot of oil and he miraculously escapes He's banished to the island of Patmos where he writes the book of Revelation. But the rest of them, they die. A horrible death. But it is a death that is meaningful for each and every one. From Nero to Diocletian for 300 years, the church was under constant and overwhelming threat. As a matter of fact, when you get to the end of the 300 year period and you come to Diocletian, who's about the middle of the 250s, there's this violent and persistent hatred for Christians and the Bible. And there is this vicious attack to stamp out Christians and stamp out Christianity and destroy the Bible. And I told you the story before that he calls the Roman generals together and he says, I want to destroy the Christian scriptures. And they say, we'd love to destroy the, the Christian scriptures. What are they? And diabolically, Diocletian says, whatever they're willing to die for, burn it. As a matter of fact, things were so bad for the Christians that they went underground in order to hide themselves from Diocletian's wrath. And when it seemed that Diocletian had made an end to Christians and Christianity, you know what he did? He made a metal, a coin. He had a coin minted. And you know what it says on that coin? The Christian religion is destroyed and the worship of the Roman gods is restored. I've been looking for 25 years for that coin. There's a few examples that are known. The coin remains. But Diocletian is dead and gone. And there are men and women all around the world who still live to give God glory. The famous French reformer Theodore Beza made the famous statement to King Henry of Navarre. He said, Sire, it is truly the lot of the church of God for which I speak to endure blows and not to strike them. But may it please you to remember that it is an anvil which has worn out many hammers. Each and every generation finds new Christians to exploit and persecute and destroy. And it's taking place all around us. But most of you are completely unaware. In Eastern Europe, it's still a crime in many places to be a Christian. In India, it isn't unusual that you will be beaten and incarcerated for your faith. 
when I was there earlier this year, when I spoke to a group of graduating pastors and ministers and evangelists who would go out. I was speaking to a group of leaders and a group of pastors. And I and and KP Yohanan came up to me and he says, when you go up to the platform, look at their faces because know that each and every one of them are going to experience some measure of persecution. Some will be spit at. Some will be vilified. Some will be beaten. Some will be arrested. Some will be incarcerated. Almost certainly a few of them will die. There was another person in the 1600s in the state of Connecticut during the time of our own colonial era. And a man was caught having an illegal prayer meeting in his home. You see, you could only manifest religion certain ways. You had to do it according to the church edict and the church tradition. And when this particular person was caught having a Bible study and a prayer meeting in his home, he was beaten severely, so severely that all he could do is rest on his knees and on his elbows. And he said he called the lashes roses. Because of the fragrance of the privilege of being able to identify with Jesus in his persecution. And in verse 21 it says, but all these things they will do to you for my name's sake. Because they don't know him who sent me. Notice what Jesus does. He identifies both the persecution and the persecutor with people who are literally detached from God the Father. The reason why they hate God and they oppose God and they oppose the word of God is because they don't know God. Not really. John Wesley was a man who believed the scriptures. He was riding down a road one day and it it dawned on him that it had been three whole days since anyone had thrown a brick at him or an egg at him. And alarmed, he, he stopped, he got off his horse and he cried, Can it be that I have sinned and that I am backslidden? And he got down on his hands and his knees, and he began praying and interceding with God to show him where, if anywhere, in his life that somehow he had gone astray, that somehow there was some fault inside of him. And a rough fellow on the other side of the hedge, hearing the prayer, looked across. He recognized John Wesley, and he goes, I'll fix that Methodist preacher. And he picked up a brick, and he tossed it at Wesley, and the brick landed right next to his head where he was praying. And at that moment, Wesley got to his feet and he goes, thank God it's all right. I still have his presence. Yeah, we laugh. We laugh. But if we pause and we evaluate our own life. The Bible says that those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. 
we each and every one of us have an opportunity to testify to the glory of God and the presence of God and the praise of God and the word of God and the promises of God and the solutions that the Bible offers. And sometimes we remain silent because we just don't want to have to bear the persecution. Jesus says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. The word excuse, by the way, is translated cloak or cover. It's the Greek word prophasis. Art and Gingrich chose to translate that word valid excuse. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin, but now they have no valid excuse for their sin. Jesus is reminding them that his presence and his preaching exposed their sin. The preaching and teaching of Jesus, listen carefully, exposed sin then. And it exposes sin now. And in verse 23, it says, He who hates me hates my father also. There's no cover. There's no excuse for the person who says, Well, you know what? I love God. It's just Christians that I despise. You know, in my own way, I really love God. What a liar. It's completely opposite of what Jesus says. The reason why it's completely opposite of what Jesus says is because Jesus knows the truth. That if you truly love the Father, then you're going to love the things that the Father loves. And what does the Father love more than the Son? How in the world is it possible to love the Father and hate the Son? That's why when my Jehovah's Witnesses friends come to my doorstep and I say, you know, you may call yourself a Jehovah's Witness, but remember what the Bible says. He who has the father has the son. If you exalt the father, but neglect the son. If you promote the father, but reject the son. You reject both father and son. In John chapter 15, verse 24, it says, If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. Jesus basically reminds the disciples no one ever said the things he said. No one ever did the things that he did. No one else walked on water and calmed the storm. No one else turned water into wine. No one else multiplied the loaves and the fishes. No one else cleansed the leper. No one else gave sight to the blind. No one else raised a dead, corrupting body from a grave, 
No one ever raised himself from the dead, never to die ever again. Who else performed miracle after amazing miracle? And Jesus points out this remarkable principle. With revelation comes responsibility. With knowledge and privilege come responsibility. And that's the problem with this Bible. The moment you open it and the moment you read it, you become accountable to it and for it. And like a mirror, it begins to reflect the circumstances of your life and the circumstances of your soul and the circumstances of your heart. And you may want to smash it, deny it, redefine it. Pretend that it meant something to someone in the past, but it can't mean anything to you. But it's not true. Jesus gives the world the true revelation of the living God. The words of Jesus and the work of Jesus reveal the will of God and the sinfulness of human beings and that their sin is without excuse. And Jesus does the unthinkable, the unforgivable. He exposes the sin of the world. Now, this is what's interesting. John earlier had written, Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world but that through Him the world might be saved. And that's the key. Jesus doesn't just expose our sin, but He also gives us a remedy for sin. He gives us a way to experience forgiveness of sin and the power to have a right relationship with God through Christ. Imagine a person goes to the doctor and the doctor reveals to the patient that you have a disease and it's a fatal disease if unattended. And the doctor then offers a cure, but you deny the disease as well as the cure. That's exactly what the religious leaders did. They denied the disease and they denied the cure. And I want you to remember, I want you to remember the context in which this is taking place. Remember, Jesus has left the upper room. He's walked next to the temple. He's going down the Kidron. He's walking towards the Garden of Gethsemane. And dotted throughout the countryside are firelights as they come together in order to participate in the Passover. And that night, that very night, that very night, Soldiers will come and they will arrest him. No generation has had a greater privilege than to hear the words of Jesus and see the miracles of Jesus. No generation has ever committed a greater evil than to kill Jesus and to reward his goodness with a Roman cross. Why does it shock you? Why does it surprise you? That your goodness will be rewarded with isolation, with hatred, with vilification. Jesus says in verse 25, this happened that the world word might be fulfilled, which was written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Remember what the religious leaders said? We are the religious leaders. We are the guardian of truth. 
We are both the guardian of truth and the the guides to truth. Ask a religious Jew if they love the Bible, what will they tell you? They love the Bible. They love the Word of God. But Jesus says, but this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Where does it say that? Psalm 35, 19. Let them not rejoice over me who are wrongfully my enemies, nor let them wink with the eye who hate me without a cause. In Psalm 69, 4. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. They are mighty who would destroy me, being my enemies wrongfully, though I have stolen nothing, I still must restore it. Jesus quotes the scripture, and I want you to think about this for just a moment. Even as he's quoting the scripture, it brings joy and encouragement. The Jews claimed God's word as their own, and they professed to believe it, and they sought to teach it and protect it. But guess what? It foretold their wickedness. Question. Do you own a Bible? It's a simple question. Possession of the Scripture will only add to your guilt if you reject Christ. Possession of the Scripture will only add to your guilt if you reject Christ. But Jesus will promise something. The ministry of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus will testify to the fact that in order to meet this kind of opposition... In order to face this kind of fierce hatred, you're going to need a supernatural ally. The very presence of God inside of your heart. You know, Pliny the Younger was the Roman governor of the province of Asia Minor during the reign of Trajan. This is shortly after the death of John the Apostle and and the persecutions. And Pliny was so puzzled by the Christians in his jurisdiction that he wrote his patron Trajan a very famous letter that we have to this very day on advice on how to deal with the Christians. And it is said that a certain unknown Christian was brought before Pliny and finding little fault in him, he proceeded to threaten him. He said, I will banish you. Thou canst not, was the reply. For all the world is my father's house. Then I will slay thee, said the governor. Thou canst not, answered the Christian, for my life is hid with Christ and God. I will take away your possessions, continued Pliny. Thou canst not, for my treasure is in heaven. I will drive you away from man and beast, and you will be all alone. And the calm reply was, Thou canst not, for I have an unseen friend from whom thou art not able to separate me. What's a poor Roman governor to do? He has the power to threaten life and torture. What do you do with people like this? What do you do with people like this? What do you do with people who in the 
face of overwhelming opposition say, the word of God is true. The love of God is real. The forgiveness of God is sure. The hope of heaven is certain. Is your life hid with Christ? Do you know Him? Do you love Him? Do you stand up for Him? By the way, all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. If you don't live godly in Christ Jesus, you have nothing to worry about. You'll blend in just fine. You'll fit in to the pattern. You will be poured into the mold. You will look and sound just like everyone else. Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, I pray that, Lord, we would have the courage to love you and the courage to love each other and the courage to love our enemy, the courage to face the opposition, the courage to stand in a world that hates you and that hates the Bible. Lord, the moment that we stand for you, the moment we identify with you, the moment we say that what you say is true and what the devil says is false, it will elicit, for some of us, opposition. And for some of us, persecution. But Lord, I pray. I pray that we would stand strong just like every generation has stood before us and that we would identify with you. That, Lord, we would be separated with you. That we would be consecrated to you. And that we wouldn't be intimidated by anyone. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.